This has been a very easy class to teach because the President's Council, which is made up of men who led this class in the past, make all the decisions, lead the class, uh, guide us in the future, and it frees me to spend my time teaching the class, which is what I, I do best, and uh, I don't do the other best, I can tell you that. You'll be glad that I'm not the administrator of this class. <laughs> but anyway, the President Council does such a great job. Now next week, we're going to be up on the ninth floor of the Spurgeon Harris, and we're not only going to have breakfast, there's going to be music. I believe at least part of the Roundup Band's going to be there. Uh, T-Bob Davis is going to be there, the piano. My understanding is that T-Bob was with the class when it started the first week. Now, David, I don't know if this is true, but this is what I heard, that Dr. Criswell convinced T-Bob and his wife, who were planning on leaving the church and going to, I think, maybe Prestonwood or somewhere else, to stick around because he was starting a new class and he needed T-Bob there to, to play music or something. I don't know if that's the case or not, but I heard that. So he's going to be back... Uh, next week and he's going to be playing for us. So it'll be a great week. Uh, I hope that you get there early and we'll have a great time. We'll spend a lot of time eating, a lot of time in fellowship, and then we'll have a short lesson and that'll start a brand new era for the President's Talk. Okay, let's take our Bibles and open up to Luke chapter 21. Luke chapter 21. We're going verse by verse through the Gospel of Luke. We will complete chapter 21 today. We have a lot of verses to cover. We have about 35 verses to cover. So we're going to move pretty quickly. It's a very difficult passage because it's a passage that deals with end times and signs and all these kinds of things. There's a lot of confusion about this passage. I've spent all week looking at it. I feel that I've been able to discern the message and we will be talking about that in a little bit. I think I'll be able to outline this chapter for you very well. And then we'll only have chapter 22, 23, and 24. Three chapters left. So we should be finished within the next several weeks, uh, or a few weeks, depending on how long it takes us. But anyway, we're going to begin in Luke chapter 21 and verse 5. Luke chapter 21 and verse 5. Now let me explain what's happened. It's Passion Week. Uh, Jesus is going to be crucified on Good Friday. It's probably about a Thursday right now, maybe Wednesday or Thursday in the week. Jesus has been teaching in the temple. He's cleansed the temple. He's sort of taken over. And he's teaching each week in the temple. His audience consists of his disciples not only the 12 disciples, but a lot of people who are following him that are calling him teacher or master. His audience also includes his enemies, Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes, uh, who have turned against him and are trying to kill him, as well as the mass of people who are just trying to figure out who this guy is. Okay, So let's pick up at verse 5, and here's what it says. Then as some spoke of the temple... Then, as some spoke of the temple, how it was adorned with beautiful stones and donations, he said, These things which you see, the days will come in which not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now, 
for Jesus to make this statement uh, must have caused uh, ripples uh, through the audience because what he has said is that this temple, which they said, look at this temple. Isn't this the most beautiful building you've ever seen? And it was. It was the most beautiful building for hundreds of miles around. This was called Herod's temple. Herod had spent 45 years building this temple. Imagine that. The National Cathedral in Washington, D.C. took 100 years to build. It was a, a multi-generation project, and Herod's Temple was the same thing. It was adorned with gold and silver and precious woods and tapestries, and you've never seen anything like it. Uh, when people walked by, they went, who hadn't seen it before, just caught their breath. So Jesus says, well, yeah, it's a beautiful temple, but not one, of this, one stone of this temple is going to be left. And not only does he say that, if you look at the way he words it, in the last two or three verse, words of verse 6, look what he says. He says, it'll be thrown down. You see that? He's talking about a violent destruction. Someone coming in and literally dismantling the temple in a violent way. And so this is the message that he wants to send uh, this audience at this time. Now look at verse 7. So they ask him, after he said that, saying, Teacher, but when will these things be? And what will be the sign? Notice that singular. What will be the sign will there be when these things are about to take place? Now, the fact that he's called teacher in verse 7 indicates that it's the disciples who are asking this question. The ones that look upon him as the teacher. Now, really, they're asking him two, temp two questions in verse 7. Notice, the first thing is a when question. They said, in verse 7, when will these things be? What things? When will the temple be destroyed? And then the second question is a what question. Look what they say in verse 7. And what will be the sign? What will be the sign? When's it going to happen? And how will we know when it's going to happen? Is there a sign singular that the temple will be destroyed. So what Jesus does is he launches into a prophetic discourse. He starts talking about future things. And the first thing he tells them is that they need to make sure that they're not deceived. They need discernment. Look what he says in verse 8. He said to them, Take heed that you are not Deceived. Notice that phrase, take heed, be on guard, watch out. Deceivers are going to come. They're going to say the temple's going to be destroyed or something like that. Don't be deceived. Look at verse, into verse 8, the reason for the warning. For many will come in my name, probably means many will come claiming to be the Messiah, saying, I am he. Look what else they're going to say. And the time is drawn near. Now these are deceivers that say this. I am the Messiah. I am He. Hey, the time's near. Now it's going to happen. He says, watch out for these people. And then he gives them a command at the end of verse 8. Therefore, do not go after them. Do not go after them. They are going to deceive you. So, that's a very important word. Now look what he says in verse 9. But when you hear of wars and commotions, do not be terrified. 
Look at that. When you hear of wars and commotions, do not be terrified. That's not the sign that the temple is going to be destroyed. Wars and commotions. Look what else he says there. Why not? Why shouldn't we be terrified? For these things must come to pass first. But the end will not come immediately. The end will not come immediately. Now, very interestingly, if you look at verse 8, he's talking about people. Deceivers. Many will come in my name. The people. In verse 9, he's talking about events. Do you see that? Wars and commotions. These things. Events. Verse 8, people. People. Verse 9, events. Look at the command associated with the people at the end of verse 8. Don't go after them. Don't go after them. In verse 9, about the events, right in the middle of the verse, don't be terrified. Don't be terrified by the events. Don't go after the people, the false prophets, and don't be terrified by the events. Does that make sense? He says the end will not come immediately. The end of what? The end of the temple. Now let me tell you what happens. <clears throat> in the 60s AD, false prophets start coming on the scene. False Christ start coming on the scene. People start saying, I'm the Messiah, follow me! Just like Jesus predicted. So what were they to do when they heard that? Don't go after them, they're deceivers. And then there was wars and commotions. In fact, there, were, there was a movement called the Zealot Movement that grew in Jerusalem, and they actually began a war against Rome. They wanted the Roman soldiers off their property. Get out of our country. It was called the Jewish War. And so Rome had to send its major general there to fight this war with the Jewish people. Vespasian, who was the general. And he fought the Jews for nearly four years. Wars and commotions. Did that happen? He said, don't be terrified by that. Saying that to his disciples, don't be terrified by that. That has to happen first. Eventually, Caesar dies, and Vespasian, the general, is made the new Caesar. The guy who's fighting the war against these zealots. And his son, Titus, became the next general who continued to fight the war with the Jews. And it ends up with Masada. Remember that whole scene, the Masada scene? And eventually the Jews are... Uh, defeated, and Titus comes in and he destroys the entire temple. The events happen basically just like Jesus says they're going to happen. Now, at verse 10, something happens here. Now listen very carefully. This is where things can really get confusing. But uh, you are, you know, well-versed in the Bible, and I think that you'll understand what's happening. In verse 10, Jesus skips ahead, past the destruction of the temple, and he starts talking about the end of time beginning in verse 10. Verses 8 and 9, he talks about the end of the temple. Verses 10 and 11, he talks about the end of time. Now watch how you know that. Look how verse 10 opens up. Then he said to them, do you see that? Uh, this is another discussion. Okay? I mean, it goes on at the same time, but now he's going to switch subject. How do you know that? Because then... He said to them, that word then is a word that deals with sequence. Right? 
So now he starts speaking about the end of time. And look what he said. Verse 10. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Now we're talking about a universal conflict, not just one in Israel. We're talking about kingdoms coming against kingdoms and nations coming against nations. And then in verse 11, and there will be great earthquakes in various places and famines and pestilences, and there will be fearful sights and great signs from the heaven. Now notice in verse 10, it deals with national chaos. Nations against nations. Do you see that? Kingdoms against kingdoms. In verse 11, it deals with natural crises. Verse 10, national crises. Verse 11, natural crises. Earthquakes, famines, pestilences. Do you see that? Those are the things that are going to precede the end of time and the setting up of the kingdom of God. In fact, I want you to notice something. Notice toward the end of verse 11, it says, there will be fearful sights and great what? Signs, plural. Do you see that? Signs, plural. There will be signs, plural, that precede the end of the age, but there is one sign that will precede the end of the temple. Remember they said, and what will be the sign? One sign precedes the end of the temple, but signs, plural, precede the end of time. And that's very important that you get that because what he's going to do now is he's going to amplify. That was sort of like an overview. Well, when's the temple going to come to an end? When's time going to come to an end? Okay, That was an overview. Now he's going to get specific. And here's what he does. In verses 12 through 24, for those of you who keep notes, he's going to talk in detail about the destruction of the temple. It deals with the sign, singular, that will precede the destruction of the temple. Then in verses 25 through 88, he'll talk about the end of the age, the end of time. And there he'll talk about signs, plural. Okay? So let's look at this. First, the destruction of the temple. Look at verse 12. But before these things happen, all the things that he's just described, that just mentioned, look what's going to happen. Now, this is all before the temple's destroyed. They, verse 12, will lay hands on you. That means they will arrest you. And persecute you. Delivering you up to synagogues and prisons. You shall be brought before kings and rulers. Now notice what happens here in verse 12. You see, first of all, they're going to arrest you, lay hands on you, and they're going to persecute you. Okay, now watch, you're going to see two things happen, and you're going to see three sets of twos. Arrest and persecution, set number one. Okay. Set number two, deliver you to synagogues and prisons. Set number three, bring you before kings and rulers. Now notice how those are divided. They're going to arrest you, and guess where they're going to put you when they arrest you? In a prison. You see that? That's the next set. And then they're going to bring you before rulers. Okay? The second set. They're going to persecute you. Who's going to persecute you? The Jews are going to persecute you. Guess what they're going to do? They're going to bring you up in the synagogues. 
Notice he's going to divide this into two sections. What the Jews are going to do to you and what the Romans or the Gentiles are going to do to you. The Gentiles or the Romans are going to arrest you, throw you in prison, bring you before their rulers. Did that happen? Yes, it happened. And guess what the Jews are going to do? They're going to persecute you. They're going to bring you up into their synagogues and throw you out of their synagogues. And they, will, and, and they will bring you before their rulers. So that's what we have here. We have the Jews and we have the Gentiles persecuting the Christians before the temple's going to be destroyed. Look at verse 13. But it will turn out for you as an occasion for testimony. Hey, when they bring you before their synagogues and before their rulers and before their kings. And why does he say they're going to do that at the end of verse 12? For my name's sake. You see that? You're going to be arrested and persecuted because you're a Christian. He says that to his disciples right there. If they're listening to it. And, uh, but that's going to be an opportunity for you to give a testimony. Amen. Now, guess what? Does this happen? Yes. yes, in the book of Acts, also written by Luke. He tells how Peter and John are arrested and... How they're persecuted, and how they're brought before the rulers of the synagogues, and uh, do they have an opportunity to give a testimony? Yes. yes. How about Saul of Tarsus, who gets converted? Does he get arrested? Is he brought before kings and rulers? And yes. does he give his testimony? Does he say, "Does he say, oh, King Agrippa, let me give you my testimony"? Yep. See, this is uh, what all this is going to happen before the temple's destroyed. Jesus says there's going to be a great persecution against the Christians, but it'll be an opportunity for you to give a testimony. Look what he says in verse 14. Therefore, settle in your hearts not to meditate beforehand on what you're going to answer. In other words, when you're brought before kings and you're brought before Jewish rulers, Roman kings and Jewish rulers, don't even think about it. For I will give you the words, give you a mouth, words and wisdom, which all your adversaries will not be able to contradict or resist. So he says, when, they're, when you're brought before, don't even plan a defense. Just stand up there, open your mouth, I'll give you the words to speak. Which they will not be able to answer. And I will give you wisdom, which they will not be able to contradict. Does that happen? When Peter and John are brought before the Sanhedrin, they speak with such wisdom, they're just befuddled. They don't know what to say. Same thing when Paul's arrested. He speaks and they don't know what to say to him. In fact, King Agrippa says, Paul almost, thou, thou has almost persuaded me to become a Christian. I can't even answer you. It's, it's, it's amazing that this is all going to happen, see, before the temple is destroyed. Now look at verse 16. You will be betrayed, he says to his disciples, by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and they will put you to death. And you will be hated by all. And you will be hated by all. Why? For my name's sake. That's the second time that's been mentioned. Simply because you're Christians. And now he gets very specific and he says, it's not just the Jews in general who are going to persecute you, it's even your relatives and your friends. And they'll put you to death. They'll put you to death. Your friends will do that? Yeah. You know the first person who was betrayed by his friend? Jesus. About three days later. <laughs> Two days later. It happens to Jesus, and it's going to happen to them. But look what he says in verse 18. But not a hair of your head shall be lost. 
Look, you won't even lose a hair on your head. Now, wait a second. There's a problem here. Verse 16, he says, you'll be betrayed by your friends and they'll put you to what? And now he says, not a hair on your head will be lost. So what's going on here? Uh, is a hair on their head lost? Or are they put to death? Well, the answer is yes to both. They're put to death, but guess what? It doesn't hurt them. You would say, wait a second, that doesn't make sense. How can you be put to death? And then it's like <coughs> not even having a hair plucked for you. Because when Jesus was put to death, what happened three days later? He rose from the dead. And guess what? They couldn't hurt him, and he had the last word. They didn't. He was the victor, not them. Amen. And guess what happens if they put you to death? You will be raised from the dead. Amen. And if, if a great persecution would happen to occur in this country and you were put to death, uh, you'd be raised. You might be raised tomorrow if the Lord came. Amen. might be three days later. It might be 3,000 years from now. We don't know. But guess what? In the end, you'll be all right. You'll be okay. Nothing's going to hurt you. By your patience, he says, possess your souls. By your endurance, you gain your life, is basically what he says, verse 19. In other words, when they bring you up there, don't beg for your life. Say, oh, please spare my life. Please spare my life. Hey, you do that, guess what? You'll lose your life, and you won't be resurrected to eternal life. But if you endure to the end, hey, who endured to the end? You know the first person that did that? Yeah, it was Jesus, wasn't it? Uh, did Jesus stand up there and talk to Pilate with wisdom that Pilate couldn't even understand and fathom? Yeah. Didn't Pilate say, don't you know I have the power to put you to death? Yeah. And did Jesus say, oh, Pilate, please don't put me to death. I'll, I'll do whatever you want. I don't want to die. No, he endured to the end. And Pilate put him to death, but guess what he gained? Life, three days later. See, this is what Luke wants us to understand. That prior to this destruction of the temple, there was going to be an outbreak and a persecution and Christians were going to be put to death. This is what was known by the Jews in between the New and the Old Testaments as the Messianic woes. They thought that the Messiah would be persecuted and they would suffer and the people of God would suffer with him. We suffer in a sense with the Messiah. Now look at verse 20. But, so we have that persecution. Now look at this verse 20. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by the armies, see even that persecution isn't the sign that the temple is going to be destroyed. Look at this, verse 20. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by the armies, then you know that the destruction is what? Near. Now, what was the question they asked him in verse 7? Lord, when's this going to happen? What's the sign? Here it is, verse 20. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by the armies, then you know the destruction of that temple is near. That's the sign. When Rome comes in and surrounds the temple area and surrounds Jerusalem, and then Jesus gives instructions to his believers. Look what he says to them. Verse 21. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Hey, when you see that happen, you know destruction is near. Flee for the mountains. 
Let those who are in the midst of her, in the middle of Jerusalem, near the temple, get out of town. Let those who are in the country not enter into the city. It's not a time to be going into Jerusalem when you see that army. It's a time to get out of Jerusalem. Uh, why not? Look what it says. Verse 20. Why wouldn't you want to go into Jerusalem? Look at verse 22. For these are the days of vengeance. That all things which are written, so that all things which are written may be fulfilled. This is, this is a time when vengeance is going to come upon that city. And it's going, to be, it's going to be a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy that the prophets wrote about centuries before, like uh, Hosea and Zechariah and Ezekiel told about the destruction of the temple and a new temple that would be built and a lot of these kinds of things. This is all part of God's plans right there. But woe to those, look at this, get out of the city, but woe to those who are pregnant. It would be hard getting out of the city, wouldn't it? And to those who are nursing babies in those days, that would be very difficult. Why? For there will be great distress in the land and wrath upon this people, meaning the Jews. So what we have here is that God says uh, this is a time of vengeance in verse 22, and he calls it wrath upon this people, the Jewish people. Uh, it's interesting that when the temple's destroyed and Jerusalem's destroyed, that is an act of God's wrath, but he's using the Romans to perform his wrath. He's using lost people, unsaved people, to carry out his will. And those who can't get out, they're going to be destroyed. Uh, now, he's writing, he's talking to the Christians. The disciples are the ones that teach you. Tell us, when's the temple going to be destroyed? And he gives them, he said, when you see that army, you watch out. He says, when you see that army surround Jerusalem, get out of town. Now, you know what happened? You know what history tells us? History tells us that around 69 A.D., 70 A.D., when the Roman soldiers began to surround the city, it looked like the end was near. That the Christians remember these words from Jesus. And you know what they did? They left. They went to the hills, and many escaped into Jordan, and they found refuge in Petra. <coughs> and they were not killed when the great destruction came and Jerusalem was destroyed by the Roman soldiers. In fact, there were prophecies, Christian prophets, during the late 60s that said, the destruction of the temple is near. Escape to Petra. Go to Jordan and escape. And the Christians in mass left Jerusalem and they were not destroyed. The Jews were so angry that the Christians, many of who were themselves were Jewish, Jewish Christians, uh, didn't stand up and fight with them. <laughs> didn't die on Masada with them. And because the Christians left the Jews, based on these prophecies, Christianity and Judaism split at that point. And since then, Christianity and Judaism, in a sense, has been apart. That's why the Jews do not like Christians. It goes all the way back to the Christians escaping to the hills. And they said, you've abandoned us. So this animosity is between Christians and Jews throughout the centuries actually has its origin way back here. It's very interesting. 
And uh, that's why it's very hard to convert Jews today. They don't even realize this history, but this is, it goes all the way back. It's just like the Jewish uh, you know, Israel-Arab conflict. Most people living today don't even know how it started. You know, to live in that country. But it has a history. And it just continues to progress over time. And that's what's happened here. Then look what he says in verse 24. They, notice they, they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive into all the nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled by the Gentiles. And that's exactly what happened. Uh, the city was destroyed, the temple was destroyed, the Jews were scattered. The Jews were scattered, exiled from their own country, and they're still in exile today. Most of the Jews aren't back in the promised land. Most of the Jews are out scattered. In fact, uh, Jews have been wandering for 2,000 years not having a homeland. Now, in 1948, the UN declared Israel to be the homeland of the Jews, and some Jews went back. But that's not the regathering that God's bringing them back. You know, our prophecy teachers will tell you that's the regathering and all that kind of stuff. Uh, we don't know that from Scripture. Okay? Uh, they are still in exile. How long will they be in exile? Look what it says now. They'll be captive in all the nations. They'll be trampled. Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles. For how long? At the end of verse 24. Until the time of the Gentiles be fulfilled. Jerusalem won't be trampled underfoot by Gentiles forever. It'll only be until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Is Jerusalem still being trampled underfoot by Gentiles? Of course it is. And that's because the time of the Gentiles has not been fulfilled. We are living in the time of the Gentiles. That's the time when God is preaching the gospel through evangelists and preachers and different means to Gentile peoples. He's bringing in the Gentiles. He's grafting in the Gentiles right now. But there will come a time when God says, that's it, time's up. And then things will change. See what it says? Jerusalem will be trampled by the Gentiles for how long? Until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And at that point, Paul tells us that right now he says the eyes of the Jewish people are covered over. They can't understand the gospel. But when the time of the Gentiles is in, those scales will drop from their eyes and they'll hear the gospel and they'll get saved. But right now we're living in the time of the Gentiles. Does that make sense to you? Okay, all that deals with the destruction of the temple. Okay, now, in verse 25, he starts to talk about, in detail, the end of the age, the end of time. Those other verses, the end of the temple, now again, he goes back and in some detail he talks about the end of time. Now look at verse 25. And there will be, what? Signs. See, now we move from the sign... Jerusalem being surrounded by the armies and the destruction of the temple to signs that point to the end of time. The end of the temple, now the end of time. There will be signs in the sun, in the moon, and in the stars, and on earth perplexity or distress of the nations with perplexity and the sea and the waves roaring. Now we're talking about the end of time. 
and there are going to be signs. Where will the signs be? Air, land, and sea. Sky, land, and sea. And I believe that this he's describing when the time of the Gentiles is, is over. <coughs> Notice it involves nations, plural. Perplexity. What's going on here? Why is the sea in distress? Why is the waves roaring? And look what happens as a result of that. When all these signs begin to happen. Men's hearts failing them. From fear and the expectation of those things which are coming upon the earth. For the powers of heaven will be shaken. Now notice what happens. In verse 25 it deals with the nations. Do you see that? Distress of nations with perplexity. Deals with nations. Look at verse 26. Deals with people. Men's hearts failing them. What's happening here? See, the national leaders, the governments can't figure out what's happening. I'm sure someone will say, oh, that's uh, global, warming. global warming. Yeah, that's global warming. Here it is. This is all global warming. That's what the nations are doing. But guess what? The people are saying, global warming. What's happening here? And it says, men's hearts will fail them for fear. It means they're going to be having heart attacks and fainting fits. And they're, uh, they're going to become like men's hearts fail. They're going to faint, basically. Fall, failing them for fear. And what's going to happen next? Expectation of those things which are coming on the earth. Why? For the powers of heaven shall be shaken. Which is one of the great verses of the Bible. The powers of heaven shall be shaken. Donald Gray Barnhouse translated this passage differently than most people. The word heavens there, powers of heaven shall be shaken, in the Greek is uranos, from which we get our modern word uranium. He said, men's hearts will fail them because the power of uranium will be shaken. You know what happens when uranium gets off balance? You have nuclear explosions. Now, I don't think that's the right interpretation. Okay? I think what's, saying, what's really happening is that the powers of heaven are be sh is shaken because God's coming back. And he, there's a sense in which this is what we call a theophany, where God's going to break in from eternity into time, and when he does, it's this big shaking. Everything's going to be shaken. And I think that's probably what it's talking about, because in verse 27 it says, Then they shall see the Son of Man coming in the cloud with power and great glory. So I think what's happening is that the reigning Lord Jesus, who is ascended by the time Luke has written this book, in 60 AD or so, he's already ascended, he's taking his position at the right hand, uh, he's going to come back, and when he comes back, there are going to be all kinds of signs in the heavens and all kinds of commotions, supernatural and natural commotions, and they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds. Notice they will see the Son of Man. These are the lost people. Remember it says, Scripture, Zechariah 12 says about the Jewish people, and they shall see him whom they have pierced, and they will mourn. Uh, but look about Christians. Now when these things begin to happen, look what you're to do. Look up! Lift up your heads! Because your redemption is draws nigh. Notice that 
different response than we have. The lost people are saying, what's happening? What's going to happen next? But when it happens, guess what you're to do? You're to look up and say, hey, here he comes. And it speaks of our redemption drawing nigh. Very important phrase, redemption drawing nigh. Because we had, back in verse 20, destruction drawing nigh at the end of verse 20 regarding the temple. There is a sign that the destruction of the temple is coming. It's when Jerusalem is surrounded. But guess what? There is a sign that our redemption draws nigh and the end of the ages come. And that's when you see all these signs coming in heaven and the Lord Jesus Christ coming back. And he gives us an illustration. He says about the fig tree. Then he spoke to them a parable. He said, look at the fig tree and look at all the trees. When they're ready budding, already budding, you see it. Hey, you can see it. Hey, look, it's budding. There's signs. Signs out there. Look, it's budding. And you know for yourselves, the summer is nigh, is near. So also, when you see these things happening, you know Look at this next phrase. The kingdom of God is near. Do you see that? In verse 28 he said, your redemption draws near. Look what he says in verse 31. The kingdom of God is near. And he's giving us the signs of when the kingdom of God is going to come on earth and there's going to be great judgment at the end of the age. Verse 32, assuredly I say to you, this generation will not pass away till all these things take place. And this has caused a lot of people confusion. What does this word, this generation? I've heard of all kinds of um, explanations. But what he's talking about is the generation that sees those things happening. Probably the evil generation. But when that phrase, this generation, is used throughout the New Testament, it often speaks of the evil generation. That evil generation that sees these things happening... Uh, will not pass away until all these things take place. And Jesus says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. In other words, you can count on it. What I'm just saying here, you can count on it. I guarantee it's going to happen this way. This is Jesus' assurance of us. His word is immutable. And then you know what he does? He gives a pastoral discourse. He's given us a prophetic discourse. Now he gives us a pastoral discourse. He gives a word, of, a word from a pastor, a word from a shepherd. He says, but take heed to yourselves. Now notice he's talking to the disciples, to those who are Christians living in the, in the, in the age. Take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing. You don't want to be like the world. That's how they're going to do. They're going to see this happening, and they're going to say, oh, man, we better have a party before. Let's have an end-time party. You know? Let your hearts be weighed down with carousing. Look, drunkenness and the cares of the world. Look. Take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and the cares of the world, and that day comes upon you unexpectedly. Well, make sure that you don't act like the world. Don't get into that mindset. There's a temptation. Right now, we're living, the temple's already been destroyed. We're living in the end, in a sense. We're living between the ages. And uh, the Lord hadn't come back yet. The Son of Man hasn't broken through the clouds. And there's a temptation for us to say, ah, oh, he's probably not going to come back. I just think I'll act like everybody else. He says, don't do that. Watch out. Don't fall into that trap. <coughs> Look what he says in verse 35. 
where it will come as a snare on all those who dwell on the face of the whole earth. If it catches you un unprepared, it'll be like a snare. You'll be trapped. It'll be too late. That's why he talks about enduring. Watch, therefore. Look at this. Watch, therefore. In other words, be on guard. And pray always that you may be counted worthy to what? Escape all these things that come to pass and stand before the Son of Man. See, since we know the signs of his coming, we should be ready. We should be ready so that we don't faint, but we're able to stand. So that we're not caught in the snare, so that we're not destroyed by the vengeance and the wrath of God, but that for us, our redemption draws none. We're not to be like the world. Now, how do you prepare yourself? What does he say right there in the middle of verse 36? Look what he says. He says, watch therefore and do what? Pray always. That's how you prepare yourself. You occupy, you keep your eyes looking up. You should always be looking up to heaven. You never know what those clouds are going to be doing one day. Keep, your, keep looking up, be alert, be sober. Don't go at carousing, getting drunk. Don't be allow the cares of the world to get on your soul. So, oh, what's going to, oh, I don't know what's going to happen in this recession. Oh, Lord, you'll be back in 10 minutes. Don't be like that. Don't look at around the world and, go, and the signs and all the mess that's going on. And go, oh, what are we going to do? Hey, be ready. He could come in any minute. And you can escape all of this. And you do it by praying. See, prophecy, and that's what this is. This is prophecy. Prophecy is given in Scripture to motivate us to live godly lives. Christian lives. Lives that are close to the Lord. As believers, we are to persevere. And then Luke closes out this chapter with this. You'll notice it's now in black writing. Luke gives his closing comments and he says, In the day daytime he was teaching in the temple. But at night, Jesus went out and he stayed in the mountains called Olivet. Then early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. Now this passage is very interesting because it tells us two things. First of all, it tells us Jesus' daily routine in the temple. Uh, what was it like when Jesus was teaching? Well, he would teach during the daytime, and then at night, guess what he'd do? He'd leave the city and go to the Mount of Olives, and that's where he'd spend the night. He'd camp out there, sleep. And then early in the morning, he'd come back to the temple, and boy, when he was there, there was already a line of people waiting to get in to hear him teach. Very interesting. So why did he go outside the city? Because during Passover week, the city was crowded with about 200,000, 300,000 people. It wasn't easy to find a place to stay. So he would go out, and then he'd come back in. The crowds were always there. So that's very interesting. But another thing is that these verses, 37 and 38, close an entire section of Luke's book. That's important. This concludes a section of the book. Because notice what it says in verse 38. In the early morning, all the people came to, came to him in the temple to hear him. Now notice those words. The people, temple, came to hear him teach. Okay? Look back at chapter 20 and verse 1. That's where the section begins. And notice what it says. Now it happened on one of those days as he taught the people in the temple. Notice that section opens up with him teaching people in the temple. 
And notice how it ends in verse 38. People came to him in the temple to hear him. And that closes out that section. Next section starts chapter 22. And that is basically the arrest of Jesus. The Lord suffered the arrest of Jesus and his death and resurrection. So uh, Luke includes two or three chapters just on his temple teaching. And this is how he closes it out. Now, let me just summarize this for you. The temple's already been destroyed. Would you agree with that? There's no temple over there on the Mount of uh, on the Mount right now. Well, there's a mosque. The mosque of Omar. That's not the temple. The temple's been destroyed. Would you agree with that? Uh, whose temple is it? Oh, it's not you. Ah, this whole place is trampled underfoot by the Gentiles. Isn't that right? Uh, I don't have to worry about the temple being destroyed. It's already destroyed. But what I can say is, I can trust Jesus' word because it's happened just the way he said it. That should give me a lot of faith in the word of Jesus Christ. Now, the second thing I can say is, the end has not yet come. Would you agree with that? We're still in the Sunday school class, so I'm assuming that it hasn't come. So we live between the end of the temple and the end of time. We live in the interim. That's right where we are right now. So our job is to make sure that we guard ourselves, <laughs> be alert, and be praying, and always looking up. Because one day, our redemption draws nigh, and we will escape the wrath to come, and the kingdom of God will come upon the earth. We'll pick up at chapter 22 next week. Father, we thank you for this passage. Very difficult passage. But when we can see how Luke logically divided it and laid it out, it fits together and it makes sense. Oh, Lord, help us to realize that we can trust in your word. You give us a true word. If the things happened as you said they would regarding the temple, then we can believe that things will happen the way you said regarding the end of time. So help us to take this pastoral exhortation to heart. Help us not to get burdened down with the cares of the world or lose ourselves in drink or carousing, but help us, Lord, to be watchful, prayerful, knowing that our redemption draws nigh. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.